0: at butcherbox.com slash morningcup and use code MORNINGCUP to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police, when police arrived, arrived I they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Okay. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird Cup of murder. Some cases leave you, a spectator wondering how on earth these conclusions were drawn. On September 28, 2000, a family was brutally slain. a case that as an outside observer saw a number of mistakes and blatant issues that for some reason the courts could not seem to see. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On the night of September 28, 2000, 36-year-old David Cam, a former state police trooper living in Georgetown, Indiana, arrived home at about 9.20 p.m. Walking into his garage, he stumbled upon what I can imagine is every husband and father's worst nightmare. Lying there in the garage were the bodies of his wife, Kim, 35, his son Bradley, 7, and his daughter Jill, just 5. Kim, lying half-dressed on the floor near a stream of blood and lying in the back seat of the family's bronco were both children, all three members of the Cam family had been shot to death inside their own home. Quickly assessing the situation, David noticed that young Bradley still felt warm to the touch. Yanking him from the car, he tried and failed to revive his son. And when he realized that his attempt had been in vain, he grabbed his phone and called 911. Crying out to, quote, call everybody out to my house now, the dispatcher attempted to calm the grieving family man while alerting the authorities to the crime. The police arrived at the CAM residence at 9.30 p.m. and David quickly told them everything he could about the situation. that He had been out playing basketball, he came home to discover the gruesome scene, and how he attempted to perform CPR on his son who, at the moment, was lying on top of a prison-issued sweatshirt. When tested, that piece of clothing had, amongst other forensic evidence, DNA belonging to two unknown persons. Despite this glaring piece of evidence, investigators pretty quickly started coming up with their own theories that focused solely on David Ray Cam. Working the case from this one particular angle, investigators believe that David came home from playing basketball, shot his family, and after attempting to clean up, abandoned that idea and called the local police. This theory was backed by the work of a man named Rob Seitz, a crime scene photographer who was believed by police to be a blood spatter analyst. Rob told investigators that there was a cleanup at the crime scene and that high velocity spatter was found on the shirt that David was wearing at the time. There was also a phone bill that allegedly indicated a phone call made by David at his residence at 7.19 p.m. There was also a phone bill that allegedly indicated a phone call made by David at his residence at 7.19 p.m. the night of the murder, a time he claimed he was playing basketball. This, coupled with a history of infidelity, made him the perfect suspect in the eyes of the local police except not all that evidence was reliable. In fact, some of it was downright inaccurate. While the rumors of infidelity did seem to check out, the time of death determined during the autopsy was placed at 8 p.m., much earlier than the 9.30 time that would be necessary if the investigator's theory was correct. And while police argued that the phone call disproved his supposed alibi, the phone company discovered and reported an inaccuracy within their system and confusion regarding Indiana's complicated time zones, meaning the call was actually made at 6.19 p.m., which coincided with the time David said he was playing basketball. As for the spatter found on his shirt and the evidence of the cleanup, There was actually no evidence proving that a cleanup even took place and instead, what they were seeing was just a normal separation of blood when exposed to air. And the area that supposedly showed high velocity spatter were later deemed to be inaccurate interpretations by their supposed expert. With basically every piece of their theory being proven false, they tested that foreign DNA from the sweatshirt, but got no matches. With their first theory proven false, they went back to square one and came up with something different, something that still dubbed David Cam the killer. With the time of death giving David his ironclad alibi, one backed by at least 11 witnesses, investigators altered their theory slightly and claimed he must have snuck away from the game, committed the murders, and then slipped back without anyone noticing. Though this seemed far-fetched, the case against David Camp went to trial in the spring of 2002, with blood spatter being the main piece of forensic evidence and infidelity the motive. The prosecution claimed the bloodstains on his shirt were the result of being the gunman, while the defense said it was from contact with Jill's bloodied hair while removing Bradley from the back seat. Backing this was a bloodstain analyst for the defense who stated that there was some overlap between the appearance of different stains and blood spatter that, to an untrained eye, could be confused. He demonstrated how the blood could have been transferred using wigs and stated that with a gunshot, David's shirt should have been covered in hundreds of stains, not just a handful like they were seeing. Despite these solid arguments, David Cam was convicted of murder, But in August of 2004, the Indiana Court of Appeals overturned it, citing the trial judge's decision to allow the testimony from the dozen or so women who claimed they were having an affair with the married man. Claiming the decision created an unfair bias, and because the prosecutor didn't adequately connect those relationships to the murders, the conviction was tossed. But by that November, the prosecutor, Keith Henderson, refiled the charges against David Cam. Now, while awaiting the new trial, the defense team asked that the DNA from the sweatshirt be run through CODIS for a second time. Later claiming that their efforts were refused by the prosecution until they were compelled via court order, the samples were rerun and, this time, not only was a match found, but it was discovered that that particular sample had not been run in the first place, despite the insistence by the prosecution that it had. The DNA sample found on the sweatshirt was a match to a man named Charles Boney, a convicted felon from nearby New Albany. And with that piece of knowledge, the second sample was run again and came back as a match to a woman named Mala Singh Mattingly, Charles's then girlfriend. At the time of Kim, Bradley, and Jill Cam's murders, Charles was out on parole after being convicted of a series of armed attacks on women. Some were attempted abductions at gunpoint, some were stalking, and several involved the theft of shoes. While this might've seemed like an unimportant detail at the time, it struck investigators as odd when they remembered that Kim's shoes had been removed and lined up neatly on the top of the Bronco. The only piece of order in the very chaotic crime scene. There were also bruises and abrasions found on the top of her feet. Charles Boney was brought in for an interview and was given a polygraph test that determined he was being deceptive. He denied any and all involvement in the case and said that he donated the sweater to a charity. With that, he was cleared as a suspect. However, just two weeks later, his palm print was discovered on Kim's car and he was officially arrested. Around this time, it was discovered that Stan Faith, the prosecutor in David's first trial, was actually Charles's former attorney. But when asked to represent him again following this new arrest, they had to decline because of conflict of interest. He did, however, admit to talking about the case with Stan prior to becoming a suspect. And when asked why his office failed to identify Charles as a suspect, the attorney responded, I regret it. I deeply regret it. But the myth that's growing out of this is false and denied any intentional wrongdoing. While questioned, Charles gave a number of conflicting stories before finally claiming that he was lured to the home by David Cam, who was supposed to be buying a gun from the former convict. He said that he arrived at the home at about 7 p.m. to sell the weapon, a meeting they arranged through chance encounters around town, and then handed the gun over wrapped in that gray prison sweatshirt. Within seconds, Kim arrived home in the Bronco, and David went out to greet her in the garage. That's when Charles claimed he heard the sound of three shots fired and David storming back into the house pointed the gun at him and yelled out, you did this. He said that the gun either jammed or ran out of bullets and fearing for his life, Charles ran after David, chased him back into the garage and then he managed to slip back into the house when Charles tripped over Kim's shoes. That's when Charles picked them up and placed them on the hood of the car and leaned against the vehicle to look inside at the carnage. Claiming that's why his handprint was on the Bronco, Charles Boney placed all of the blame on David Cam. Bringing in Mala for questioning, she claimed that her boyfriend came home that night, quote, breathing really hard, excited somewhat, gun in hand, and with a bloody scraped knee. She said that the following morning, he asked both her and his mother to watch the news coverage regarding the murders, or that she left to shower while he and his mother argued over something though charles's story might have convinced some based on testimony from other prosecution witnesses kim, bradley and jill were still alive and at the pool until 7:15 p.m. thus disproving basically every piece of charles's confession regardless both charles boney and david cam were charged as co-conspirators in the murders and heading to trial first Charles was given 225 years in prison. David returned to court on January 17, 2006, and with the affairs now deemed inadmissible, the prosecutor, Keith Henderson, claimed in court that David had been molesting his daughter and killed his family to cover up his crime. The evidence he claimed proved this was a single blunt force trauma injury to Jill's genitals. With the medical examiner testifying for the defense that the injury was likely not from sexual abuse and that the child's hymen was intact, the prosecution switched gears and presented Charles's story to the jury. On March 3, 2006, David Cam was, for a second time, convicted and sentenced to life without parole. Immediately filing an appeal, this time citing the prejudicial nature of the molestation allegation, and the lack of evidence linking the injuries to the father, the Indiana Supreme Court granted another reversal, and David was brought to court for a third and final time. In this trial, the prosecution switched theories yet again, and stated that David killed the family in hopes of cashing in on Kim's insurance policy. Charles Boney testified against David, giving his same story, but with new DNA evidence being presented, a Dr. Ikelenboom said, claimed that he found touch DNA consistent with Charles in several places on the clothing of both Kim and Jill, including Kim's underwear, the arm of her shirt just above an abrasion thought to have occurred during a struggle with the killer, on her broken fingernail, and on the stomach of Jill's shirt. Hoping these findings would discredit his claims that he never touched any of the victims and thus disproving his story in general, the defense claimed that if Charles was the attacker... Which DNA seemed to suggest, then it was unlikely that David was the shooter. Then came the controversial ruling by the judge that instructed the jury to, if they believed that he, quote, aided and abetted Charles Boney in the murders, they could find David Cam guilty of murder. With the prosecution now claiming that even if he didn't pull the trigger, David was directly responsible for the murder of his family. The defense attempted to object the new instruction based on complete lack of evidence that the two men ever met before, and that since he was acquitted of conspiracy charges during the second trial, this would directly violate the law against double jeopardy. They also said that this new theory completely threw out the blood spatter evidence, which was basically the only major piece of forensics tying David to the crime in the prosecution's eyes. Arguing that the investigation was riddled with mistakes and that Charles Boney's history and DNA evidence made him the most likely suspect, the jury was sent for deliberation and on October 24th, 2013, David Cam was found not guilty of all the charges. And finally, after 13 years behind bars and decades of a legal battle, was deemed a free man. In the aftermath of the case, many, many issues were raised from the misinterpretation of evidence, the reliance on blood spatter, misconduct by a discredited supposed expert, and possible tampering by a police officer. Despite all of this, justice in the opinion of most was finally done when David Cam was exonerated. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to do a terrible thing happened on September 29th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it.